We're in this together, united with one heart. Big wisdom and big courage will bless us with safety and peace. Amen. Hello and uh, welcome to the China Podcast. Yes, hello. How are you all? It's been a while. It has, it has, it has, it has. Um, we hope you're keeping safe. We are. We hope you're keeping out of trouble. Although some of you haven't had the choice with being locked down and all that. Yeah, it's been 70 odd days of apartment confinement for some. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Close to three whole months for others. Yeah. Many, many others. Um, but the good news is that Shanghai is out of lockdown. Yeah. Um, and we're recording today, June 1st, and restrictions have been list- have been lifted. Yeah, they have as of today, but it's not right across the board. No, not everywhere. Um, there are a small number of compounds waiting to be let out. You know, still the odd case or two floating around, the odd case of COVID. Uh, but the general mood is celebratory, even if there are plenty of da boys still knocking about. Yeah, the, the green fences have come down. Um, green mesh, blue barriers, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're all taken apart and removed overnight. Um, Shanghai residents, they, they have flocked to the streets and they are reveling in their freedom once more. It's a celebration, like I say, but Owen, is this something to be celebrated? Because bear in mind that these variants of Omicron, they don't muck about. The next lockdown could be lurking around any corner. Absolutely, it really could. Um, I joined the gym. I joined the gym and went and I paid my my year subscription. The following day, the hotel was turned into a COVID uh, quarantine hotel, and uh, yeah, so that's my gym membership gone. Uh, and that happened overnight. That was just overnight. And then another thing that happened overnight was uh, there's there's now a permanent uh, testing site. At the compound to to my to, to where I live, where I live, there's at the door. There's a permanent testing site. It's yeah. just like a prefabricated building mm-hmm. with one of these pop ups, little pop up thing. Yeah, but it's it's permanent. It's concreted in. It's it's there for posterity, and it looks like that it's going to be a thing going forward. It looks like that. Um, but why? 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 Not so much that because. That I expect, but the hotel, why was that suddenly transformed? I think it was, do you remember there was a case? Do you remember there was a case here? Yeah. Like, where where we're sitting right now, there was one singular case. Yeah. Um, well, that happened the, the day that I joined a gym. Mm-hmm. The day that I joined a gym, that happened. And then they shut down the building. They shut down the hotel and they turned it into a quarantine hotel. Um, I don't know who's in there. I don't know who has to quarantine in there. I don't know what the what the deal is with it. But I can't get to my gym, and that literally happened between um, me joining the gym and the next day. And you reckon they're going to leave it as it is, or? Well, they've said that they, they said that it would open again this month, mm. um, which I'm hoping it will because I've obviously paid money, you know. So once this specific person has come out of their quarantine exactly yeah once this person has come out of the quarantine do they then open up an entire hotel yeah. which is in a 20-story building yeah you know and it's it's walled off from the front like it's a 20-story building that's walled off from the front uh, um 
but yeah it's crazy how that it happens is, it is crazy and and the thing is it doesn't it seems like these dabis and the and the testing centers it seems like they're here to stay that's that's the general consensus that i'm getting um yeah, definitely because yeah we were saying in the last episode of the podcast yeah, that yeah. um it's a job now it's, it's a job for uh migrant workers it is a job for migrant workers and you know they're, they're all into it seems as if it's going people. to be permanent yeah. it seems as if it is and you've seen these you've seen these uh these shrines that they've put up around uh, Shanghai now. I have, yeah, um, which inspired our little opening anecdote today. Yeah. Um, so anyway, many religions, particularly Christianity, they have shrines or grottos, uh, small enclaves of worship, where the person can stop off for a few minutes and have an old pray or a, or a moment's quiet reflection. In Christianity, this space is usually devoted to the Virgin Mary. In Buddhism, it is, of course, devoted to the Buddha. In China, you get a dabai. Please be seated, present your health codes, open wide and say, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who'd have thought that the PCR tests were going to be a new cult religion? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there when you say cult. Yeah, a bit of a cunt religion as well, to be fair. Well, I mean, few people became to sub- subscribe to it full time. Yeah, the PCR tests every forty-eight hours for as long as the pandemic hangs around, which is probably forevermore. Well, it mightn't always be a pandemic. Let's put it that way. Uh, it'll probably be declassified at some point, maybe. Yeah, slowly but surely. Uh, anyway, there has been tons happening in China since our last episode. Um, loads to spark our curiosity and keep us entertained and all that will be relayed to you the listener over the next month and into the summer as long as we can take our fingers out of our arses that is that's the thing since we took on this podcast um, I've developed a respect for every single independent podcaster out there because it does require a huge amount of effort and dedication to put out a new episode on the regular, especially for anyone who's working a nine-to-five job. That's true. Uh, and not to mention like the research for podcasts, uh, which you know are more informative than conversational-based, yeah. uh, just like us. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah, the next one's a good one. Yeah, so uh, stay tuned for that. But for now, we're going to get into something which I find incredibly interesting. Um, We're going to talk about social contracts in China, as in the social contract between people and the state. Um, To explain this, let's begin with a little trip down memory lane. The Communist Party in China is more than 100 years old. And since its rise to power, China has transformed from an impoverished, fragmented, semi-colonized nation into a unified global economic powerhouse. By the end of this decade, all things considered, China is on course to become the biggest economy in the world. And this is in spite of many perceived experts predicting either one of two scenarios. uh, That one, it would totally transform uh, into a liberal democracy the more it developed and globalised. Or two, that it would completely fall from grace Neither has happened. The Communist Party has retained absolute monopoly over state power 
and there has been little to, to suggest any signs of widespread anger or discontent against the government line. Muted criticism usually targets areas like efficiency and social justice, uh, but never for regime change. Yeah. Um, But how has a relatively small group of people maintained such a longevity of power? Many around the world will point out censorship, a social credit scoring system, or heavy police presence in daily life. The answer, however, lies more so in the idea of a social contract between the party and the people. Social contracts, what are they? It's a term that was first discussed by the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau and is the hypothetical contract between the ruler and the ruled that necessitates the latter sacrificing certain rights and freedoms uh, in exchange for protection and the maintenance of the social order by the former. To maintain authority, the Communist Party has presented a number of social contracts before the Chinese people over the duration of its 70-plus years in power. Um, The terms of these social contracts are crucial to understanding the foundational basis for the stability and the legitimacy of the one-party rule in China. Yeah, it's a it's a contract between the state and the people and it's you know it can be stated or it can be unstated but there are a number of them and the first social contract came with the acceleration of communism at the beginning of the 20th century. Mao Zedong, inspired by what was happening in Russia, he envisioned creating an industrial powerhouse that would return China to its past glories. Such ideas were laid down alongside the foundation of the Chinese Communist Party in 1921. Mao then embarked on a communist revolution of China over the next three decades, leading an armed struggle in the Chinese Civil War against Chiang Kai-shek and his Republican Army, and an anti-colonial movement against the Japanese, which culminated in the communist liberation of the state in 1949. Now, Due to these successes, the Chinese people's trust in the Communist Party's ideals were formed. The Communists promised an independent, sovereign and united China and delivered by establishing direct control over autonomous regions like Tibet and Xinjiang. And this movement, it was solidified during the Korean War when China declared military intervention against the United States of all places Um, to demonstrate its commitment to protecting its territorial integrity as well as the national interests. The second social contract focused on alleviating poverty and hunger in China. This was undertaken through a centralised economic policy which became fundamental to the Chinese economy, but was only realised following the struggles of first the Great Leap Forward and later the Cultural Revolution which ended following Mao Zedong's death in 1976. Uh, Deng Xiaoping succeeded Mao and revised the party's approach to development in an era of widespread poverty, hunger and low productivity. Deng promised the people that such societal disasters would never happen again under CPC rule. Yeah, and the third social contract concerned economic autonomy and this again would take decades to achieve the process began with the reform of the agricultural sector 
80% of the Chinese population lived in rural areas in 1978. More than 70% of the Chinese workforce was employed in agriculture. Under Deng, the collective farming policy which had crippled the rural economy was replaced by a household responsibility system that granted farmers autonomy over their land with incentives for greater production. Now, although they did have the incentives for greater production, the land was still publicly owned. And this small yet significant step became the driving force in poverty reduction in the first decade of that reform. More autonomy was also attributed to the provinces and the cities in a bid to experiment with economic policy. In such a massive country, this made perfect sense, and consequently, competition amongst the various provinces attracted and expanded industries. Officials from the best-performing state enterprises and provinces were rewarded with lucrative promotions in both the state apparatus and the party hierarchy. Yeah, and... However, these reforms were not enough to encompass a broad spectrum of the population who felt left out. The, this, they were left out of the state enterprise-driven growth structure. And upon re-evaluation, the party presented another contract where citizens were entitled to full economic autonomy. And this allowed them to operate private businesses. This, in turn, encouraged private entrepreneurship, which added to the overall growth of the Chinese economy into the 21st century. These three social contracts helped enable China into what it is today. The CPC has eradicated absolute poverty and has helped China become a more modern and prosperous nation. So, what does the future hold? Well, during the CCP's centenary celebrations, Xi Jinping... Um, who's the current president, he presented a fourth contract before the people. And it's a promise of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. This is, in essence, a commitment to reclaim China's place in the world as its leading power. As usual, in return for stability and absolute acceptance of the one-party rule. The leadership has promised to turn China into a great prosperous and powerful modern socialist nation. Sounds encouraging and China is making some big impressions in some of the lesser renowned parts of the world. Uh, Xi's flagship projects such as the Belt and Road Initiative, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank with 103 members representing 79% of the global population um, as well as 65% of global GDP um, and then the recently concluded regional comprehensive economic partnership in countering US-led Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, they're just some of the steps already taken by the Chinese government to fulfill its global ambitions. Yeah, the, the CPC has faced many challenges that threatened its absolute rule. Even today, China continues to ca tackle corruption, um, growing income disparities and a wealth gap between provinces and regions um, they could become potential irritants to party rule if they're left unchecked but despite being in power for so long 
It is remarkable that the CPC remains ever vigilant and sensitive towards public sentiment. In recent years, the party has embarked on an ambitious campaign to eradicate corruption after taking stock of growing public anger towards malpractice within the system. Yet, this heavy-handed approach has not only tightened its grip on the party but also evoked fear. For instance, the recent crackdown on large technology companies like Alibaba and Didi over access to enormous personal data um, of over a billion citizens, it's of, that's of critical importance to the party. But will such actions serve as a major hindrance to China's ambition to become globally dominant in the digital era? Well, only time, only time will tell. As long as a significant majority of Chinese citizens continue to trust the party and have faith in its party leadership to achieve the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, and as long as the party itself continues to adapt and learn from both its mistakes and successes, it appears that the CPC will continue to reign supreme. Now, that there was an extensive overview of the social contract policy that has existed in China under communist leadership. But to really delve into the roots of the public psyche and why people systematically subscribe to this rule of thumb can be perhaps best explained by examining the misconceptions that many in the West have of China and Chinese citizens. There are three widely shared but essentially false assumptions about modern China. And these assumptions reflect gaps in their knowledge about China's history, its culture, and its language. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, right, so the first assumption is that economics and democracy are intertwined. And if you recognize what China has achieved in a relatively short space of time, you might consider that fallacy. You see, China is not on the same development trajectory as, let's say, the US or Britain, um, definitely not on the same trajectory as they were following the, World War, the Second World War. For starters, China began much later than other Asian economies, such as Japan, South Korea, Malaysia, due to a 40-year Maoist detour, let's say. Um, according to this view, economic growth and increasing prosperity will cause China to follow a more liberal model for both its economy and its politics, as did the countries that I have just mentioned. Yeah, it's certainly a plausible theory, but it's one that ignores the fundamental differences between China and what we call the major players of the Western international community. Um, the likes of the United States, Britain, France and Japan, they've been pluralist democracies since 1945, since the end of the Second World War. Um, economic growth came intertwined with social progress, which made it easy to imagine that they were two sides of a coin. The collapse of the USSR appeared to validate that belief, given that the Soviet regime's inability to deliver meaningful economic growth for its citizens contribute, contributed to its collapse. Yeah, but it's fascinating that one of history's biggest explosions in economic growth has come in the context of a stable communist rule. 
suggesting that democracy and capitalism are not the be-all and end-all. It can be argued that the economic boom in China over the past three or four decades has been somewhat capitalistic in nature, but it must be remembered that a bunch of communists are the ones who are pulling the strings. And many Chinese believe that the country's economic achievements, namely poverty reduction, mass infrastructure investment and tech innovation, have come about because of and not despite China's authoritarian form of government. And let's talk more about innovation for a minute because China has also ridiculed predictions that its author- authoritarianism would inhibit its capacity to innovate by instead becoming a global leader in AI, biotech and sp- space exploration to name a few. Some of its technological successes have been driven by market trends. With more money about, people wanted to buy goods or communicate more easily. And the likes of Alibaba and Tencent have helped them do just that. But the bulk of the technological progress has come from a highly innovative and well-funded military that has invested heavily in China's burgeoning new industries. Consumer applications have come thick and fast, making more obvious the link between government investment and products and services that benefit individuals and modernize society. And perhaps that's the reason why the ordinary Chinese person looks on local companies such as Alibaba, Huawei and TikTok as sources of of national pride rather than simply sources of jobs or GDP as they might be viewed in the West. Yeah, and if you think about that for a second, if we were to... If, if, if you're in the West and you s- start speaking ill of Amazon, uh, Facebook, um, and Apple, people aren't going to say, oh, you're having a go at America. No. Like, but over here, if you, if you speak ill of Huawei, if you speak ill of Alibaba, you're speaking ill of China. Like China, the nation, as opposed to just a company. Yeah, because these products reflect the regime in a way. Yeah, in a, in a way, they're they're intrinsically linked to uh-huh. uh, the society's perception of what China is. Yeah, you know, um, and most it's it's like it's like they're 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 models of of Chinese progress. Yeah, they're models of Chinese progress. They're they're high-tech, high innovative, highly innovative companies that have that exist in China because of mm-hmm. um, the state. Yeah. yeah. And and they they show how far China has come. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And most uh, most ordinary people in China, they view the authoritarian state as a source of opportunity and not an oppressor. Like think for a second about the American dream what that represents and how in many ways the hype surrounding it has distorted the reality of American society. China has a similar concept. Of course it comes with varying degrees of success depending on who on who you are or where you live but the fact of the matter is that communist policy has enabled millions upon millions of regular working people to claim their piece of the pie 
in an era of so much wealth. Um, they've been able to afford an apartment, which is considered the ultimate prize of modern Chinese success. And because the CPC reformed property laws and they have excess money, so they'll probably own a car and they'll exist in relative comfort because of a lower cost of living. The second assumption made by Westerners is that authoritarian systems of government can't be legitimate. However, most Chinese would tell you otherwise. Westerners' failure to appreciate the effectiveness of China's brand of leadership explains why many still expect China to reduce its role as investor, as regulator, and especially intellectual property owner, when that role is in fact seen as essential by the Chinese government. Yeah, um, part of that legitimacy is rooted in historical achievement, such as the repelling of subsequent invasions or defeating internal enemies, victories that have only reinforced the legitimacy of the party and of its authoritarian system in the eyes of the Chinese people. Nearly three quarters of a century on from the liberation of the country in 1949, many Chinese people today believe that their political system is actually more legitimate and more effective than that of the West's. This is a belief alien to many Western business opportunists, especially if they've had experience with other authoritarian regimes. The critical distinction is that the Chinese system is not only Marxist, but also Marxist-Leninist. You see, whereas a Marxist system is concerned primarily with economic outcomes, a Marxist-Leninist system is concerned not only with the economic outcomes, but also with gaining and maintaining control over the system itself. And maybe that's partly the reason why Airbnb have failed in China. That inability to operate and survive in an environment that is forever being scrutinized and controlled. Yeah, they're they're pulling out of China. Um, and it just shows how difficult it can be for many of these, these Western brands, these Western companies to try and make it here. Yeah. Uh, Tesco, the supermarket chain yeah. in, the, in England, in, in Britain, they, they tried, they failed. They were there when I came. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and they weren't there when I arrived. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, it probably depends on whether or not the company is willing to adapt to the Chinese model of doing business, yeah, that's, which is, is critical. Yeah, that's the truth. If you that, want to survive. If you want to survive, that is the truth. You've got to adapt to what the Chinese say. And there are huge implications for anybody wanting to do business in China because if China only pursued economic outcomes it would it would welcome foreign businesses and investors willy-nilly provided they helped to deliver economic growth they might even go so far as to treat them as equal partners um, regardless of who owned the IP the intellectual property or majority stake in a joint venture But because this is also a Leninist system, those issues are of critical importance to Chinese leaders who won't change their minds about them, however effective or helpful their foreign partners are economically. And this plays out every time a Western company negotiates access to the Chinese market. The insistence is that the ownership of the foreign company's IP is transferred 
to a Chinese company. Yeah, a Leninist approach to selecting future leaders is also a way the CCP has maintained its legitimacy. Because to many ordinary Chinese, this approach produces competent leaders. They're chosen by the CCP and progress through the system by successfully first running a town, then a province. Only after that do they serve on the Politburo. And you can't become a senior leader in China without having proved your worth as a manager. China uses its particular authoritarian model and its presumed legitimacy to build trust with its population in ways that would be considered highly intrusive in a liberal democracy. But for many ordinary people in China, it's a perfectly reasonable part of the social contract between the individual and the state. Yeah. And the third assumption maintains that Chinese people live, work and invest like Westerners. China's turbulent history means that Chinese people and the state approach decisions very differently from Westerners. Let's take the personal history of somebody who is retired in China today. Let's say they survived the Great Leap Forward famine and then enlisted as a Red Guard when still a teenager, screaming adoration at the top of their lungs for Chairman Mao. In the 1980s, they were part of the first generation to go back to university and they may even have taken part in the Tiananmen Square demonstration, right? Yeah. Then in the 1990s, things change in China. The country opens up. This person took advantage of the new economic freedoms that bestowed the country, becoming an entrepreneur in their 30s. And so they did the new thing of purchasing an apartment. The first one in their family's history to do so. By the mid-noughties, they were making the most of the rise in disposable incomes by, by buying new consumer goods that their parents could only have dreamt about. Then, in the early 2010s, this person starts to moderate their previously outspoken political comments on Weibo as censorship tightened up. By 2020, they've retired. They're now intent on seeing their, their two grandchildren. A second child has only recently become legal, that is. Um, and yeah, they, they want to see them succeed without struggle. Yeah. And now, had that person been born at the same time in almost any other major economy in the world, their life would have been almost certainly more predictable. But in China, it's nigh on impossible most of the time to map out your life in such a way. This is why young Chinese people in a similar situation today may feel a reduced sense of predictability or trust in what the future holds or in what their government might do next. And so they tend to focus more on the guarantee of short-term outcomes and take less long-term risks. In contrast, the government's discount rate on the future is lower, in part because of its Leninist emphasis on control, uh, and explicitly <coughs> focused on long-term returns. The vehicle for much of this investment are the CPC's five-year plans. I think Soviet Union, I think USSR, yeah. when they had five-year plans. Um, and these, these, these five-year plans include the development of what President Xi has termed 
an eco-civilization built around solar energy technology, smart cities, and high-density, energy-efficient housing. Which all sounds cool. It does. And ambition like that can't be realised quickly or and effectively without state intervention. Relatively fast and easy, but often brutal in China. By comparison, progress on these issues is for Western, in Western economies is extremely slow. It might take decades like the, the Metro North in Dublin or the National Children's Hospital. Yeah, shambles. Absolute shambles. Yeah. Uh, decisions by both individuals and the state about how to invest all serve one purpose to provide security and stability in an unpredictable world. But does China find itself now at a crossroads or at least heading in the direction of one? Can the Chinese government maintain the legitimacy of the social contract between it and its people? Yes, because for the first time in recent memory, ripples of discontent have surfaced. In China's most modern and one of its best-run cities, weeks of brutal lockdowns descended into a surreal crisis, with signs that faith in the Communist Party's ability to govern has been eroded. Fears of families being torn apart under a draconian quarantine system coupled with a torrent of administrative botches and rising dissent such as the careful staging of nightly protests, banging on tin pots, that kind of thing, they have changed the landscape somewhat. Many people will recognise the consistencies of government officials in the beginning of the pandemic. But the realities of life under lockdown has led a generation of younger people who had grown up during a period of prosperity to start reassessing the wisdom of China's political system. Attitudes are changing in some circles. If you're a frequent China, Chinese u- social media user, you will see the strings of witty comments that poke fun at latest policies. Uh, one such comment mocked a statement declaring how the government is always behind you, the people. Yeah, the the user in question came back with, and I'm paraphrasing here, why always us the ones out in front, first in the firing line, shielding you, the government, behind? You might not read much into it, but there's plenty of similar commentary doing the rounds online. Diana Fu, an expert on China's domestic politics with the Brookings Institution think tank, notes that from imperial China to the Xi era, it's a long time, a ruler's legitimacy has relied on providing social goods. The party's contract with society rests on guaranteeing not political rights, but social rights, basic food, housing and health care to people. Digital posts about starvation in one of China's most prosperous cities, Shanghai, are effectively sounding an alarm bell that the party state is not keeping up its end of the social contract. She said. And this also stretches to within the party too, because there have been rumours of disagreements between key individuals over current policy. Last week, Premier Li Keqiang, he held a video call with thousands of party officials across the nation, in which he quite candidly warned of an even worse economic crisis than two years ago and called on them to better balance COVID controls and economic growth. 
The previous address of this scale came in February 2020 at the outset of the pandemic, which was delivered by Xi Jinping, who called for a people's war against COVID-19. Government officials charged with implementing policy aren't sure now whose instruction to follow. She continues to emphasise the need for officials to push the zero COVID strategy, whereas Lee is looking at the bigger picture. And it's important to note that Lee didn't criticise the COVID zero policy, nor suggest a shift from it. But he did express frustration with having to manage a situation that is causing the most economic damage. But it is interesting nevertheless. And don't you know that someone is going to be held accountable? But the bottom line is that she has refused to back down on the zero COVID policy. He has warned against any slackening in the control of efforts and stressed the importance of resolutely fighting any attempts to distort, to question or dismiss China's anti-COVID policy. And so it remains to be seen how long the euphoric scenes in Shanghai will last. Once the realisation of frequent testing and the threat of rolling lockdowns set in. Yeah, they won't even last a week. No, no, it's, it's, yeah, these celebrations are going to be over pretty quick, I would say. Yeah, once things get back to normal. Yeah. Shall we call it a day? Yeah, yeah, we'll let you go. Uh, it's Dragon Ball Festival in China this weekend. Uh, we get an extra day or two off, depending on, on your line of work. Um, so enjoy the break. And if you're living in Shanghai, go wild, go mad. Drink all the drinks, eat all the food, go to all the places, enjoy your life. You are free. Suck in all that fresh air. Absolutely. Thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, and we'll talk to you soon. Toodles. Yeah, we got to be in this one more time.